sun is up, I'm off to the river now. Sit beneath the morning sun. Gone away, washed away, watch the clouds roll by. And there I sit, I close my eyes. Thinking, oh. Welcome, friends. This is A Better World Podcast. 30 minutes of inspiration from the worlds of business and the arts. This is Mark Ross, and I'll be your host. All right. Welcome back. This week, I'd like to talk about the Super Bowl, but I don't necessarily want to talk about the game or the halftime performance. What I'd like to talk about Uh, were the commercials, because for the first time that I can recall in my life, it seemed as if half of the commercials had some underlying corporate responsibility message or uh, the company's purpose uh, and values built into the commercial. And I found that to be fascinating. Uh, The first commercial that caught my eye was the Audi commercial. So the Audi commercial had their, uh, they had their new sports car. It looked pretty cool. And then at the end of the commercial, Uh, Audi announces that within the next five years, by 2025, all of their vehicles manufactured will be electric. And you don't really see that kind of commercial coming out of Toyota or Chevy or Ford. Uh, So I thought it was really cool that Audi took that approach. You didn't even see a Tesla commercial, which frankly I was surprised about. Um, But kudos to Audi for uh, announcing that they were going to be moving in that direction like a lot of car companies, and then utilizing their Super Bowl time to uh, reinforce where they're heading. Sticking with technology, the, the next commercial that caught my eye was the Google commercial. And, and this one confused me at first. Uh, they showed a bunch of forms and identification numbers and letters uh, that I guess military veterans and active military members would be familiar with. But since I'm not a, a, a military veteran, It was lost on me until the very end of the commercial where they showed the Google search engine uh, and someone typing in jobs for veterans. And this one left me puzzled because if I'm a military veteran looking for a job, isn't the first thing that I'm doing uh, using the most popular search engine in the world and typing in jobs for veterans? So it really left me scratching my head thinking, Google, what is your commitment to veterans other than trying to get them to use your search engine, which they're already probably doing. So Google, where's the meat, to borrow a a term from Super Bowl commercial gone by uh, in the past, where's the meat with regard to your veterans programs? And and why aren't you talking about uh, if you have programs for veterans other than them using your technology, what are those programs? Uh, more effective, I thought, was the Microsoft commercial where they demonstrated technology that they developed for the Xbox, a modified game controller, so that children with physical disabilities could play games alongside and over the internet with children who didn't. And this commercial really was heartwarming because it showed how Microsoft was committed to using technology to bring people together and overcome physical differences. Um, it was, it was heartwarming, it was moving, it demonstrated uh, something in alignment with Microsoft's values and brand and, uh, and actually what they're doing in the field. 
And so I thought that was a much more effective use of, of their commercial time than Google's. The other commercials, uh, group of commercials that caught my eye were the beer commercials. And normally in Super Bowl, Super Bowl's past, you would find the sexy men, sexy women trying to sell beer, maybe the funny dog like Spuds, McKen Spuds McKenzie. Uh, but this time, uh, you had Bud Light out there in front talking about corn syrup and really calling Miller and Coors to the carpet uh, on their use of corn syrup. Now, I drink usually, usually I drink craft beer, so I just assume there's no corn syrup in it. Uh, but I had no idea that these mass-produced beers used corn syrup. Uh, and what makes that remarkable is that it elevates the conversation around corn syrup. Most people that are, are in tune with the corn syrup issue know that it is the uh, leading suspect for the obesity and diabetes uh, epidemics in the United States right now. It's in everything. It's in food. It's in soda. It's in candy. Uh, it's in ice cream. It's, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Uh, and if you watch the documentary King Corn, if you haven't seen King Corn, you should watch it. You'll know that a lot of what is driving um, corn syrup in everything is just, just this overproduction and subsidy of, of farmers, corn farmers. But besides that, it's incredibly unhealthy. And by elevating the conversation, by putting it in a mass-produced beer commercial, uh, Bud Light is really raising the issue to people that probably have no idea about the effects of corn syrup and how uh, it's impacting society. And so maybe people will then go use Google and, and figure out, oh, corn syrup, why this is bad for me. Uh, and so th I thought that was really cool. Um, the other beer commercial I thought that was interesting was the, the Michelob uh, Pure Gold commercial in which Michelob really puts a marker down um, with regard to organics by saying that they are the only mass-produced organic beer out there, which is interesting as we know the organic industry is gaining traction. More and more people are concerned about what they're putting in their body. And so for Michelob to really call attention to the fact that they are the only mass-produced organic beer, I thought that was ingenious. So the final ad that I wanted to talk about is the one that the NFL and CBS rejected, and it's the ad from Acreage Holdings. For those who are unfamiliar with Acreage Holdings, Acreage Holdings is a large multi-state cannabis operator, most famous for the fact that former Republican Speaker to the House joined uh, John Boehner joined their board of directors last year. Uh, the ad opens up with showing uh, a child having seizures and the mother standing by, uh, moves on to the case of someone who had had multiple back surgeries and had been formerly addicted to opioids. And then finally it ends with showing uh, a military veteran who had was also an amputee who had come back from war as an amputee and realized that the treatment program that the government had him on for pain, namely using opioids, was not a long-term solution. And in all three cases it demonstrated the healing power of this plant that's been around for millions of years uh, and is, by the way, legal in many countries throughout the world for medical and even adult use. Uh, it's legal in the United States for medical use in way more than half of the country. It's legal for adult use in more than half of the population of the country. Um, and meanwhile, the 
NFL sits by and watches their players get hooked on opioids uh, between the combination of acute pain and chronic pain and CTE uh, with a high suicidal rate. Um, yet they won't show this commercial with regard to cannabis. So I'm throwing a flag, a penalty flag on the NFL and CBS for denying acreage the ability to show this commercial. I highly recommend that if you get the chance to check it out, you can find it simply by Googling acreage Super Bowl ad and, and you'll find it that way. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Anyway, I'd love to hear from you about what Super Bowl ads caught your eye, what you think about my analysis, liked it, hated it, had a other, any of your own thoughts. Uh, you can write to me at mark, M-A-R-C, at needleconsultants.com, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. Okay, well, today I am pleased that we have my old friend Adam Gardner, who's from the fantastic band Guster, as well as with this amazing organization Reverb, here at A Better World. Adam, welcome. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Good to see you. I'm doing great. Great to see you as well. So listen, I wanted to have this discussion with you because you are in the unique position of being uh, an artist that also created a nonprofit, and I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit about how that came about. Sure. So I know that Guster started in 1991. You were a freshman. Uh, you, you were at a, a wil- is it a wilderness orientation that you were <laughs> yes. at? Yeah, it is. We met like before the first day of school, which is bizarre. And you, you know, those like people you meet if you know for those who've gone to college, like the, the you meet the first people you meet freshman year, you think you're going to be best friends with them forever, and then like. You know, you realize, actually, these aren't my people. Well, that's who I ended up being in a band with for 27 years. <laughs> it's still going. Uh, somehow we managed to keep it together. And the fact that it was a wilderness orientation, was that an elective orientation that you decided we go into the wilderness and get oriented? Yeah. Well, I think I've just always been into nature, and I did a Knowles course in high school, and I figured it would be a cool way to meet. It's kind of self-selecting, right, to meet folks that were going to this was Tufts University that we were going to. Um, you know, that were interested in maybe some similar things uh, that I am interested in. And of course, little did I know that I'd also meet not only people who are interested in protecting, not even protecting, but just enjoying the wilderness at that point, um, but they actually were musicians too. So yeah, it was kind of crazy that we met in the woods of New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that translates also into what you're doing later with, with Reverb. So you go to college, you graduate college. You, Guster continues to grind it out. You grind out a couple albums. Success finally comes. And um, you're working your way through the 90s into the early aughts, if mm-hmm. you will. And uh, I know in 2004, you formed this nonprofit organization, Reverb, with your, was it then wife? It was your then wife, yep. Lauren. Yep, we got married in 2003. So, yeah. so, so what was the concept of Reverb and where did it come from? So it was from touring around and talking to a bunch of other bands that felt similarly to us where we lamented the fact that we had such waste on tour and that the touring industry itself was just so just disposable, honestly. So all the trash at the end of the night on the ground and on the fields that we were playing and the the fact that we were rolling around in a tour bus where the generator never shut off, just guzzling fuel and everything out there was disposable. It just felt not in line with 
who I was and, and who we were as a band. You know, it's funny that you started like, yeah, we met in the wilderness. Like we, and I think obviously the first step to wanting to protect nature is loving it. And so we already had the first step. We love nature, but then we were seeing what touring was like and its impacts on the environment. Um, and at the time we were touring with John Mayer and we, you know, we were touring with Dave Matthews band and Maroon five. And I was having these conversations with them being like, isn't it just too bad? And, and, and we, we all felt similarly and, I think I just came home to Lauren one too many times complaining about it. She's like, why are you guys just sitting around shrugging your shoulders about the negative impacts your tour is doing? Do something about it. And I said, well, everyone's busy out there. It's a, it's a lot of work just to put on a show and stay healthy and do a tour. And plus, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what the first step would be. Um, and that's really where Reverb was kind of born out of it. it was that combined with Lauren's background of being an environmentalist um, for as long as I've been a musician. And you know, I think when she was working at the Rainforest Action Network, she saw how having a musician like Dave Matthews Band and Bonnie Raitt at the time when she was there backing their campaigns, what a difference that made to have the uh, support of, a, of an artist that cares like that and have, that has fans. So she, she kind of took that away in her head, like, oh, wow, all right, having the musician connection to environmental cause is really valuable to that cause. Um, so then that's how kind of together Reverb was formed to both help artists green their own tours but even more significantly, I believe, and we all believe, is actually engaging the tens of thousands of fans these, t- these tours are hitting every night uh, and engaging them to take action for the environment because that's where the real impact is. Yeah, and um, as someone that was, I think, we, I think Rock the Earth, my, my former organization, was one of the first nonprofits to actually be on a reverb tour from start to finish. That's right. And uh, it was a fantastic launching pad for small grassroots organizations to get their their message out at that time. Um, was that the Bare Naked Ladies tour then? It was. Yeah. The so Atlantis Morissette Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah, so that was the first. So we were good friends with the Bare Naked Ladies guys, and I knew they cared too. We had a similar conversation, and uh, I said, hey, I've got, you know, if you're willing to be a guinea pig on this, I've got an idea for you. Um, so what do you think? And they let us they let us do what we did, and, and we set up tents. So it was interesting, you know, in the concept of Reverb, the engaging fans kind of came it, it, to me, it came second. I think it honestly was f- first priority for Lauren. Um, and for me, it was like, how do I just clean up my own act? Um, but on that tour, we immediately were engaging fans uh, with folks like you, with Rock the Earth, and, uh, and setting up then what was a pretty primitive eco-village that was borrowed from the Bonnie Raitt camp. Because really what, what also part of the origin story is that Lauren got to know Bonnie's manager through her work at Rainforest Action Network. And... And we saw that Bonnie had done something in 2002 after we'd already come up with the idea of, of what Reverb could be. Uh, you know, we saw that, that, uh, that Bonnie had already done something similar. Like, oh, my gosh. Um, so it was like, let's call our manager and just see if we can pick her brain and get some advice. And literally within that same phone call, she was like, great. All that stuff is in storage. We'll ship it to you. Like you can be like while you're getting your own nonprofit status, you can be a project under the ARIA Foundation, which we were. Um, and even once we did get our nonprofit status, we stayed under ARIA for a few years because we just loved the mentorship that Kathy Kane, Bonnie Raid's manager, gave us and Bonnie herself gave us. Um, so really, they, they are a big part of our starting, our origin story for sure. And without their support, I'm not sure where we'd be. So uh, in terms of what Reverb looks like now, uh, how do you work with bands now? Because back then it was, like you said, you had this eco-village, you gave a platform for some nonprofits. You were underwritten in part by some um, green businesses, if you will, uh, like Stonyfield Farms and Cliff Bar. Um, and 
you did biodiesel. You basically pulled out the, the Willie Nelson biodiesel map where, where bands could stop and pick up biodiesel for the bands that were doing that sort of thing. Um, so what does Reverb look like now? Because it's much more comprehensive 15 years later. Yeah, I think it was just every time we were going out with different artists and even the same artists, and we were very lucky that all those artists that I've just mentioned we still work with. Um, and so 15 years later, this is our 15th anniversary year. Um, so for us, yeah, we just always wanted to, well, what's next? What else can we chip away at? Yeah, sure, it was biodiesel. Well, let's, let's talk about the food backstage and catering. Can we source it from local farmers? How do we support sustainable agriculture? Um, and then the various causes that artists were concerned about. And went, okay, well, let's see, all this plastic waste is at concerts. How do we stop that? Hey, let's do a partnership with Brita at the time, which was also a partnership with Nalgene to provide free filtered water for everybody at the show so they didn't have to have a single-use water bottle um, trash in the first place, never mind trying to get it in recycling. Like, let's not even start with the waste in the first place and use reusable bottles. And so that's been a huge program that we've developed now into what's called Rock and Refill, um, which is a partnership with Nalgene. And just since we've branded it that in the past three years, we've eliminated over 2 million single-use plastic water bottles at concerts. Wow. Never mind the fact that people hopefully then take their Nalgene bottles and use them beyond the concert. Uh, and I, we have plenty of stories of people doing that, of course. So that's huge. And then at the same time, it raises funds for charity. So we've raised close to $2 million through that program as well. Just on the last Dave Matthews Band tour alone, we raised $200,000 for a wilderness conservation through that rock and refill program. So there's lots, of, and it goes on and on and on. Honestly, every little piece that we could possibly look at from what's the merchandise sourced from to where are the batteries that are spent up or are only half spent going, and how do we make sure they don't end up in landfill? How do we reduce all the waste that's happening backstage and in the front of the house? How do we influence venues? You know, so when we go around with Jack Johnson, he's really been the most aggressive with pushing uh, venues and promoters like Live Nation um, towards, um, you know, they're already, they're already in that mindset, but I, I think the Jack Johnson tour really helped push them go beyond that and certainly move up their timeframes <laughs> to where he'd say, you know, look, I'm not booking this date and, until you agree to XYZ sustainable efforts. And if you don't do that, we're going to have Reaver police that. And if they, you're not doing that, we're going to fine you. <laughs> so it was like major shift in, in the industry that way. Live Nation, I think, just announced or is about to announce that they're no longer using plastic straws in their venues. Um, and that they'll be moving forward with compostable straws. And obviously we love people not to use any straws. Right. Um, but uh, So there's lots of different um, ways that we've been working with artists to, to influence the industry. Uh, even, you know, you, said, you mentioned biodiesel. That was something that, you know, you lease these buses. Generally, unless you're Willie Nelson or Neil Young, you don't own your bus. You generally rent them. Um, they're long-term leases, basically. Um, and a lot of those leasing companies were very nervous about this fuel. And I, understandably, because they weren't familiar with it, um, but with the influence of you know Dave Matthews Band, that obviously is a large band and has a number of vehicles that they lease from the company, they were willing to try it, and they went from being nervous about it to now waving the flag and it's on their homepage. We use biodiesel in our tour buses, uh, and the whole industry has kind of moved that way and it's certainly open to it. Um, be, elect it be electric next. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Absolutely, and, and we actually have. I was talking to some electric bus companies. They're, they don't quite have the range needed that for rock tours, and we'd have to really change the routing of tours, and that's a challenge. Um, but yes, absolutely. And so, yeah, things like that. Anything that comes up, and at this point now, we have this wonderful um, 
community of artists that care and are very familiar with Reverb. We've, you know, we literally, to kind of back up a little bit, we'll insert our staff onto their tour. They're embedded into the tour as one of the tour's own staff members, just like a guitar tech or a sound engineer. Um, our Reverb staff's job is to wake up first thing in the morning, make sure that everything that we advance with the venue is actually happening from, you know, what's going on in catering to what's happening in the front of house where we're going to be setting up the Eco Village to, you know, making sure that the biodiesel supplier that's coming in fuels up the trucks to make sure the local farmer is there and has the right food for caterers, etc. Um, and then, of course, when we greet the volunteers, we have a network of volunteers now across the country. We generally coordinate about three to 4,000 volunteers every year um, to, to participate and, you know, encourage their peers, their fa- you know, they're usually fans of the band, um, to participate in, in the Eco Village and take action with all the local and, and national environmental groups. Yeah, it's funny. You had mentioned Jack Johnson a little bit ago. I know that one of the first tasks that you all had to deal with when working with Jack the first time around was he wanted an environmental rider onto his contract, and you had to develop that. Can you talk a little bit about what that looked like? Yeah, and actually, that, he, he was already doing some of that. I think the, but as, as far as the rider, what we were finding is that there were some artists that were putting forth requests of the menu, basically asking for, you know, their own hospitality stuff to make sure that was green. And that was generally, um, well, not partially, I would say, uh, followed by, by the promoters. But a lot of them weren't familiar with, like, what are you, compostable silver? What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> they didn't understand, like, the, the, where do you find that stuff? You know, now you can get it at Walmart, but you couldn't then. Right. You know, we're talking about 2005. Um, so a lot of it was actually helping the venues with even following some of these riders and, and we found that just putting them attaching them to the contracts didn't do the trick and that there needed somebody to be there on the ground to not just hold their feet to the fire but actually help, help them and I think we realized very quickly that this has to be a work with approach we're not going to be you know whistleblowing against anything we all understand this is hard so how do we make this easy and that, that was our whole mission of the, it, it, and still is is Let's make this easy for whether whether you're a business in the, within the music industry or you're a musician that wants to have a greener tour or you're an individual that feels helpless because you're just one person. What am I going to do about climate change? That's such a huge global issue. What's one person going to do? But then if you actually, you know, put, you know, all right, so one Dave Matthews Band tour reaches a million people face-to-face at concerts, never mind how many fans he has online. So, you know, when you start seeing those kind of numbers added up and you can hold the mirror up to fans and say, look at what you've actually accomplished on this tour alone. You've raised $200,000 for owners conservation. You signed this many petitions. You've registered to vote this many people, like all those things add up and it, it actually gives people hope. And I feel like now more than ever, that's what we're, that's what I feel like my job is as a musician and as an, as an environmentalist is to give people hope and feel and give them that sense of empowerment. Cause it's real. It's not even, uh, a false sense of hope or empowerment. It's very real. And so our whole like messaging this year has been like band together. Together we can be bigger than the problems we face. Yes, one person alone isn't going to make a difference, but there are a lot of us and we can be bigger than the problems. And we can't depend on our government. We can't depend on others to help solve these problems. We have to do it. And we can. Yeah. And I think the other message is, um, and Reverb does this, uh, as does Guster, I imagine, when you're working with the private sector and companies, you have an ability to influence and partner with them in terms of doing good. Yeah, and well, we've so. seen a huge landscape change. And in, in, on that front, on the corporate side, 
in a very positive way. Um, and I think it's because they recognize, you know, in marketing speak, millennials, you know, they care. These, these, these folks care about what their companies are and that they understand that that's an important part of their brand identity. And it has to be real because millennials can sniff bullshit. And so it's really important that it's an authentic thing that they're doing. Um, so we're seeing a lot more companies not only looking to organizations like Reverb to have that authentic um, effect on, on positive you know, efforts for the environment, but also taking it upon themselves because they, they realize it's actually something they have to take seriously and go beyond just partnering with organizations, but actually doing work themselves. So that's, that's another piece of hope that I see in the changing landscape is public opinion as young people are, are becoming a, a more of a force is shifting the way corporate entities are, are, are operating. And hopefully that will, we'll soon see that take hold in the government too. You know, one of the campaigns I know you're working on right now and trying to create change is with regard to um, the Amazon yeah. and the wood issue and the fact that, and I'm sure this originally um, happened because instruments, the ones yeah. you play on stage every yeah. night, are made out of wood. And for a long time, those instruments were harvested, um, sometimes illegally, from farce in the Amazon. Uh, but now you have a campaign that you're working on with Guster, mm -hmm. and I, I know you've worked on it with other bands as well as you've gone to speak in front of Congress about the Lacey Act. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and where what you're doing with regard to that campaign? Yeah. Now? So that was a really natural progression and a really exciting one for, for us where, you know, so 2012 Gibson gets, gets busted basically for importing questionable wood at best, um, questionably legal wood um, for their tone woods. And unfortunately, musical instruments um, create a demand for these rare old growth tone woods um, that can be harvestly, uh, can be harvested sustainably, or at least legally. <laughs> um, but in this case, uh, apparently they weren't, and so it, it, it raised the stir. And the Lacey Act, which has been a law on the books for over a hundred years, um, came into question during uh, the Tea Party's rise, and so they made Gibson kind of the poster child for government overreach for these laws, but actually, you know, it, it, the law had been on the books, like I said, early turn of the century to, and I'm talking about the 19th century, uh, sorry, 20th century, 1900s, to, you know, under George W. Bush, this is not, you know, we're not talking about this enviro, pinko, lefty <laughs> agenda here. G.W. Bush uh, in 2008 included timber under the Lacey Act. So this is, this is not some crazy liberal agenda thing. And so uh, I was asked to testify to Congress about this because um, it was you know, clear that musician, we had a bunch of musicians that cared about the environment um, and, and somehow it moved into this music space because of Gibson. So that was really the first time that I, was, that I pooled the musicians together. Um, before that, we were working individually with you know, John Mayer, or Jack Johnson, Room 5, and taking care of their tours and working with their fans. But we never really together um, came together in unison in one large voice until until 2012. And, and that's when I was able to just throw up the bat signal to everybody I knew that I knew would care about this, being like, oh my gosh, we've been doing all this stuff to make the tours green. Meanwhile, little did we know that the musical instruments through which we're expressing ourselves could be ripped out of a world heritage site by child and slave labor uh, through international criminals. So it was this amazing response and very fast response from a large number of musicians that I was able to then basically submit to, to Congress saying, no, this is what the music community thinks. This is Gibson's alone on this. Um, 
And so after that, we, and apparently that worked, which is amazing because it wasn't, you know, we, there's a, we, a lot of what we do is a lot of, is a lot of hard work. It's just hard logistics, a lot of, you know, movement building stuff, which is slow and hard work. Glacial. Where this was, this was relatively easy. You know, like, oh, I just call up everybody, let them know what's happening. Can you chime in here? I'm going to go down to DC and we're going to tell them what we think. And, and, it, and apparently it, it, it scared folks off enough because we represented such a large constituency. You know, if you think about everybody's fans, Linkin Park, Rune 5, Jack Johnson, Dave Matthews, man, these are all the artists that were signing on to this thing. Be like, we don't want to buy another musical instrument without knowing the wood is legal. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a really uh, promising thing that happened there. But obviously the problem continues. Now, the Lacey Act still remains intact, but in foreign countries, uh, there's still, and it's not just in the Amazon, it's, it's old growth forests all over the world. Um, illegal logging is a massive problem. So we just went to Peru. We took a field trip with uh, members of Maroon 5, Stefan from Dave Matthews Band, myself, and KT Tunstall, as well as um, a local Peruvian rock star, uh, Nico, who's amazing. And, uh, and we went there and to, to live and learn with, learn, live with and learn from these indigenous leaders whose family members were murdered by illegal loggers and have seen no justice from the government of Peru at all. 90% of the timber that's exported from Peru is illegal. Hmm. Um, so it's a real problem. And, you know, it's, it's, we're talking about the Amazon rainforest. There's issues, being, you know, on all levels, from the human level where people are getting murdered on the ground, these indigenous communities who are forced to be on the front lines of protecting old-growth forests, which are the lungs of our planet. They, they're important for all of us. It's, this is a climate change-level issue. This is a global issue that indigenous folks on the ground are... are are being forced to, to protect uh, because that's where they live. It's their homes. Um, they're also the most knowledgeable. <laughs> they're in the best position to, to protect those forests because they know them the best. Um, so it was a really powerful uh, trip. We, we shot a documentary there. And yes, on Guster Tour, we have a Defend the Defenders campaign right now, which is a letter-writing campaign to the Peruvian president asking for justice for the murders that happened um, and the end to illegal logging. Great. Well, Adam, I sure do appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with me. Frankly, on a personal note, I probably wouldn't even be sitting here uh, if uh, I hadn't encountered Lauren 15 years ago and collaborated with you. My career wouldn't be where it is now. Uh, so thank you very much for all yeah. of that. Uh, for all of you out there, please check out Reverb at Reverb.org. I'll put it in the show notes as well as Guster can be found at Guster.com. Uh, safe travels on the way. Adam, look forward to seeing you hopefully somewhere around this summer. Great. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. And that's this episode of A Better World. If you found this podcast to be helpful, useful, inspiring, please consider subscribing wherever podcasts are heard. You can find out more information about this particular episode as well as our other episodes on our website, www.abetterworldpodcast.com. Dot net from your comments and suggestions and feedback. You can send that all to Mark M A R C at needleconsultants.com. I'm Mark Ross, and I look forward to joining you next time as we explore how we can all help to create a better world.
And that's this episode of A Better World. If you found this podcast to be helpful, useful, inspiring, please consider subscribing wherever podcasts are heard. You can find out more information about this particular episode as well as our other episodes on our website, www.abetterworldpodcast.net. From your comments and suggestions and feedback, you can send that all to Mark M-A-R-C at needleconsultants.com. I'm Mark Ross, and I look forward to joining you next time as we explore how we can all help to create a better world. Ah.